Bandwidth for Changelog is provided by Fastly. Learn more at Fastly.com. We move fast and fix things here at Changelog because of Rollbar. Check them out at Rollbar.com. And we're hosted on Linode servers. Head to Linode.com slash Changelog. This episode of The Changelog is brought to you by Hired. One thing people hate doing is searching for a new job. It's so painful to search through open positions on every job board under the sun. The process to find a new job is such a mess. If only there was an easier way. Well, I'm here to tell you that there is. Our friends at Hired have made it so companies send you offers with salary, benefits, and even equity up front. All you have to do is answer a few questions to showcase who you are and what type of job you're looking for. They work with more than 6,000 companies from startups to large publicly traded companies in 14 major tech hubs in North America and Europe. You get to see all of your interview requests. You can accept, reject, or make changes to their offer even before you talk with anyone. And here's the kicker, it's totally free. This isn't gonna cost you a thing. It's not like you have to go there and spend money to get this opportunity. And if you get a job through Hired, they're even gonna give you a bonus. It's normally $300, but since you're a listener of the changelog, they're going to give you $600 instead. Even if you're not looking for a job, you can refer a friend and Hired will send you a check for $1,337 when they accept the job. As you can see, Hired makes it way too easy. Get started at Hired dot com slash changelog. Welcome back. This is the Change Local Podcast featuring the hackers, leaders, and innovators of software development. I'm Adam Stachowiak, Editor-in-Chief here at ChangeLog. Today on the show, we're talking with Dan Kahn, the Executive Director of the Cloud Native Computing Foundation, to catch up on all things cloud native, the CNCF, and the world of Kubernetes. Dan updated us on the growth of KubeCon, Cloud Native Con, the state of cloud native, and where innovation is happening, serverless being on the rise, and Kubernetes dominating the enterprise. So Dan, we're just shy of a year catching back up with you personally. We met you a year ago and the term cloud native was to Jared and I, and maybe even most of the world was still becoming new and we were still learning about it. And I think we actually even opened up the conversation with like, Dan, what's cloud native? And I think now people tend to know what it is without going too deep, because I want to cover a lot of the subject, but kind of give us an update of like the last, I don't know, nine to 10 months since we last spoke. What's What's been going on with CNCF? Yeah, the Cloud Native Computing Foundation has been going like gangbusters. And so I uh, could pull out the exact numbers, but we've grown from something like eight to 26 projects during that time. We've grown from about 100 members a year ago to uh, we're just about to hit 300 members. Our um, events are growing like wild, where we had 1,500 people in Berlin um, a year ago and then 4,300 in Copenhagen a couple months ago and we're expecting 7,000 in Seattle in a couple more months. So uh, on on almost every possible metric, 3,000 unique contributors to the Kubernetes project and um, the amount of kind of money and our end user communities grown from 20 something members to 59 today. There's just a a huge level of, of growth and adoption and engagement. 
Um, and but on a on a more sort of technical level, we could actually dive into the the cloud native what it means for a second because uh, CNCF had a, a process with our technical oversight committee where we uh, argued about and came up with a definition. And oh, it's, nice. it's a little dense, but it, it's only four sentences long. So I would read it to you. If Let's you're do it. Okay, and and you can find this by searching for uh, CNCF cloud native definition. But it says. Cloud-native technologies empower organizations to build and run scalable applications in modern dynamic environments, such as public, private, and hybrid clouds. Containers, service meshes, microservices, immutable infrastructure, and declarative APIs exemplify this approach. These techniques enable loosely coupled systems that are resilient, manageable, and observable. Combined with robust automation, they allow engineers to make high impact changes frequently and predictably with minimal toil. The Cloud Native Computing Foundation seeks to drive adoption of this paradigm by fostering and sustaining an ecosystem of open source vendor neutral projects. We democratize state of the art patterns to make these innovations accessible for everyone. Whew. Well, you're right about uh, being dense, that's for sure. It is only four dense. sentences. And, <laughs> yeah, and it was five, maybe. But okay, uh, five. man, we we argued over it for months. Um, I and, can see and, why. You know, the, <laughs> but the perspective I would give on it is, and one thing that's interesting about it is, you know, people associate cloud native with Kubernetes, and right. Kubernetes is the leading platform. It's the biggest project in CF. It's one of the highest velocity projects in the history of open source. Um, right now, basically second only to Linux itself. Um, but what what is interesting about that definition is it doesn't say Kubernetes and it doesn't even mention orchestration, where Kubernetes is an orchestrator. And what what I like about the definition is that it's it's saying that over the last ten years, a lot of leading companies have separately run into the same scaling challenges, both scaling their applications on the web, but even more scaling their development teams. And when you look at companies like Twitter and Yelp and Google and many, many others, they've all needed to come up with a series of solutions that have actually kind of converged together. And now a lot of that learning is getting put into software. And that software, as opposed to having to go pay someone tons of money for it, is available for free to anyone as part of an open, the open source community. I think what's interesting, too, is, Jerry, you know, when we did the Istio show a few back, you know, just kind of seeing how, Dan, as you laid out, like Kubernetes being the most popular, the highest velocity, second to only Linux, which is really kind of crazy because you know just a couple of years ago the fight was essentially still will it win and obviously since then it has but going down you know the cloud native trail map which was really interesting in that in that show which we'll link up to in the show notes but kind of at each layer as these as kubernetes and ci and orchestration and observability and service match as each of these become more and more standardized you kind of see you know the winner essentially or the the preferred ways to do things sort of creep into each of this trail map, which this trail map is really great. It was great for illustration, but also great to talk through, you know, to see how I really appreciate that. And we're we're pretty pleased with that is um people found our stuff very confusing until we we started printing that out. I will mention if you go to um l.cncf.io, uh that's for uh landscape.cncf.io 
there's a link at the top to both the trail map, which is a sort of recommended path of how you can approach cloud native. And mm-hmm. we say, look, the very first step is to containerize. And then you want to do CICD and only third should you be implementing orchestration and, and looking at these other uh, more advanced technologies. But then um, kind of on the, the trail map is the front page. When you flip it over, if you get our printout, we have this insane um, cloud native landscape. And that has over 570 different open source projects and closed source products um, from all of these different vendors around the world that uh, it, it kind of represents the ferment and the, the excitement in the space. But mm-hmm. without that trail map, the, the landscape can feel a little overwhelming. We were kind of joking around uh, before we hopped on with you, Dan, about this being an accidental kind of a cloud native month on the changelog because we had the Istio show. Then we talked about a segment, really a conversation around microservices and monorepos. And then last week, uh, I had a great conversation with Paul Fremantle about Ballerina, which is a you know kind of a cloud native programming language, culminating with this conversation uh, with you. So it's been a lot of coverage. And I guess you know to our listeners out there who aren't that into this stuff, you know, stay tuned. We will we will diversify yet again. Have no fear. Yeah. Um, well, that is a, a great lineup, and um, I hope Paul might have taken credit for the fact that he's actually the person who coined the word cloud native about four or five years ago. Oh, did he, really? he did not take credit. He's, he was too humble. He's very to humble. Yeah. <laughs> tease that out of him. <laughs> yeah, so among other claims to fame. Well, it just seems like, you know, we, we, we kid because it wasn't like on purpose. We didn't decide to go all cloud native recently. It just kind of happened. And so it seems like, you know, we always joke that if software is eating the world, JavaScript is eating software. It seems like on, on the back-end operational side, CN, this cloud-native idea, and I mean, evidenced by 500 uh, um, projects or you know, entities in your landscape, is really eating a lot of software. And so there's just tons of stuff to cover. Is, is that what you're experiencing? I mean, with the massive growth of the CNCF, it seems like that's definitely the case. Uh, yeah, I, 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 I would just say a flat yes to that. I, I will also mention, by the way, that um, Node.js is a sister project of CNCF in the Linux Foundation. Mm. So we're really thrilled to see um, the growth there and, and, it's, and also the JS Foundation, which uh, has a lot of other core projects like jQuery in it. So uh, certainly um, Kubernetes is a great way of running your, your JavaScript apps on the server. On that note, I would say, too, stay tuned because, listeners, we will be at – I think the invite is still open, Dan. You have to correct us if we're wrong, but I think we're still invited to KubeCon, Cloud Native Con, and uh, we definitely have representation being planned for Node plus JS Interactive, which is the next kind of uh, bigger conferences y'all have here in the fall, which is exciting. Oh, that's great. Yeah, I'm really thrilled to hear that. And we're um, going to be setting up podcasting booths at uh, on the floor of KubeCon, Cloud Native Con. Awesome. Um, because there's so much interest here and we really do want to facilitate getting this message out to a wider audience. That's exciting. That's This is news to me uh, and I'm excited <laughs> about that. We've done something similar when we've gone to Microsoft Build or a few different events there where they've actually given us reserved space to do and help schedule and have and you know just really plan our content well. So that's, that's awesome to hear. And you know we're going to be in the Washington State Convention Center, which is where Same MS place. Build was. Yeah. yeah I, I think back in the end of May or June. Yeah. Uh, and so it's, it is wild now to be filling up that kind of space. We actually, with still with um, two months left, we have 143 different sponsors lined up for that event. 
and uh, we're not wow. going to be uh, announcing the schedule for another two weeks. But I can say that um, based on the the slots we have available for three days and the number of submissions, we had a, a 13% acceptance rate for the papers. Wow. So it really just speaks to uh, the level of interest in this community. The The conference alone has got to be several folks' full-time day jobs to just manage not only like the sponsors, as you mentioned, but, you know, 7,000 people. Like when I was there in December in Austin, uh, you know, that was around 4,200. And then the next one was in Copenhagen. You said 4,300. And now you're adding another, you know, little shy of, you know, 2,800 people or so to the next U.S.-based conference. I mean, you're not only scaling your technologies, but also obviously scaling in a community. And that means having a, co- a community and a conference that can actually sustain that and and entertain it and make it worthwhile to spend whatever money it is and the time involved to come there and, and actually get benefit. Yeah, and, and we are very cognizant that for the sponsors, um, it's a significant outlay of, of money. Although, I mean, we do we do offer a great deal for small startups, but but companies spend a lot of money on this. Um, then, you know, for those 7,000 people, most of them are flying in there. They're taking times away from their families. It's the hotel and such. Um, and so there are real expenses there. And so we're really, but, but we do see the conference activity of CNCF as being one of the core aspects of community building that uh, because all these communities mainly exist online, that ability to come together at least once. And, and for a lot of people, they'll, they'll do both North America and Europe. So twice a year makes them so much more effective online when they can kind of connect together that that email or that what otherwise might seem a mean Slack com- comment and can kind of see the right humor behind it. Um, and I, I definitely want to give a, a big shout out to the the Linux Foundation events team. So we're able to leverage that same events team that puts on the Open Source Summit and Node Interactive and others. And it is a little crazy that literally just uh, 18 months ago, we were in Seattle for our event and we had a thousand people there. And so to go 7x in, in two years definitely has required staffing up and and just a whole set of, of different processes and approaches on it. What's been really nice is that we get to keep iterating. So um, if we just tried to create a new 7,000 person event from scratch, I think that would probably be impossible. But the fact that they are growing and we can see the things that work and things we want to do differently. And I, I particularly want to give a shout out to our two um, co-chairs. These are uh, leaders in the community who we bring on and, and, and put a significant amount of effort into managing the program committee and picking the keynote speakers and organizing the submissions into coherent tracks. And uh, for our event in Shanghai and Seattle, that's Liz Rice of Aqua Security and Janet Kuo of Google. And they've just been doing fantastic work on uh, organizing all this. And uh, it, it is quite involved, though. Just because we're on the subject, and not that it's completely pertinent to the conversation, I'm just kind of curious in the moment since we're there. Uh, the last show, Jared and I did some back of the napkin stuff where we were talking about memberships and just kind of trying to really grasp the the amount of money being put into the foundation and the future essentially of cloud native. But I'm, I'm kind of curious the conferences as it relates to being a profit center and maybe how it helps financially the ebbs and flows. Is that a big player in it? Is it sort of a break even? How do you treat conferences? Just, just really curious. Sure. Um, we're not trying to run them at a, at a huge profit. And so 
I mean, you you certainly can go to a fancier conference in terms of the the quality of the food, or I mean, we don't want it to feel opulent because I we think that would be wrong for uh, the co- community conference. But the reality is that, um, the, in particular, Seattle has grown so much that it, it will spin off um, uh, some meaningful profit this year. And what's nice is that um, CNCF as an organization, we're part of the Linux Foundation, we're nonprofit. And so we're not, well, first of all, we don't have a way of, sort of collecting profits. I don't get a, a bonus or a commission or anything <laughs> like that. Right. And so, uh, but more to the point, our our leaders, our membership, and particularly our governing board, which is primarily the, the platinum members, don't want us to run a significant profit. So, you know, we, we try and keep like a 5% reserve um, just out of out of uh, some financial conservatism. And then the rest of the money, we're investing it back into the community. And so one example of that, um, so pe- I think people are might be aware that we've rolled out this. Actually, um, now that I think about it, I think we were just planning to do it when we spoke a year ago. So let, let me give you a quick pitch for the certified Kubernetes program. Okay. And um, Kubernetes is open source. It's available for free. Anybody can just download it and run it. But kind of like with Linux, the majority of people who use it are going to use it uh, via a distribution or via a hosted platform. And so there's this concern that as people make changes to it, does it remain Kubernetes? How can you avoid having it fork in an unhelpful way? And um CNCF, working very closely with the Kubernetes community and Kubernetes leadership, put together a conformance program. Um, And what's neat about it is all of the tests for it are open source and are built into Kubernetes itself and are the the tests that are always being run. Um, But then any company that has a distribution or an installer or a hosted platform like Google Google Kubernetes Engine or Elastic Kubernetes Service on on Amazon can run that conformance suite, upload the test logs uh, to a a public GitHub site, and then um, we mark them as conformant. And that's both a, a sort of mark that customers should look for. It also gives them the additional permission of using the term Kubernetes in their product name. And um, we've gotten uh, just insane, fantastic participation and engagement in this program where we launched it uh, literally a year ago in Austin and now have 67 different companies that have gone through this process. So we've just been able to swoop up the entire industry. And what's neat about it is that although the vendor itself self-certifies and uploads that, any future user can come along and run that same conformance test suite and confirm that nothing has changed since they certified. So there's a um, kind of a crowdsourced aspect to confirming that uh, and validating that certification. And then in addition, the certification when you do it is good for a year, um, but it goes away unless you certify a newer version. And so we're specifically trying to avoid issues where people jump off the release train and, and don't keep up with the newer features. So um, both of those have really been been quite positive aspects of it. Um, one of the challenges is that there's some technical debt built up in the Kubernetes community. All new features that come along include conformance tests to cover them, but some of the initial features as they were deployed didn't have conformance tests. And so as an example, even though CNCF doesn't normally fund 
actual engineering development, we do have the resources right now that we're working with an external test development company and um, trying to fill out some of those conformance tests for earlier work. Um, and that's just, you know, one of the ways that we can can kind of help out the community and, and help all this work to better together. What's the motivating factor for these 60-something odd companies to go through this process? Is it to legitimize their products and services in the eyes of potential customers? Definitely. Yeah. They, they um, I, you really don't want to be out there with a non-certified version of Kubernetes. It, it would be the most natural thing for a customer to say, why aren't you certified? Why did you want mm. it? Yeah, because it would almost be as if if they were anti being certified, you know, what are the motivations for that? And that might mean they're sort of anti the direction that CNCF and Kubernetes and Prometheus and all these others are, you know, the directions you're heading, essentially, for some reason they're against it. Figure out why. You you mentioned also being able to use the Kubernetes brand name in product services too. Yeah. So that's an uh, that's an extra carrot. There's no requirement to do that. Gotcha. So is is the conformance simply technical, the test, pass the tests, or is there also like a financial requirement or agree to do certain things? Yeah, requirement is to be a member of CNCF. And so for a, a small startup, that's $7,000 a year. But if you, uh, there's actually a couple nonprofit or community distributions of Kubernetes, the equivalent of Debian in the Linux world, and uh, they have free certifications. I will mention one other area that we're funding or investing in that's uh, been really pretty neat as its own open source project, and that's called DevStats. You can see it at uh, devstats.cncf.io, and it's a um, system for keeping track of contributions and pull requests and issues and aging um really trying to just keep up on the project and particularly where Kubernetes is now split between about 30 special interest groups trying to track uh, which of those SIGs are kind of falling behind or might need extra help or or need to invest more effort in things. And then also kind of which companies are making contributions, which developers. Um, and how it works is, is pretty neat where uh, there's a great free service called GitHub Archive that takes all 80 million or so uh, GitHub repos and that are public and every event that's happened to any one of those. And what's amazing is we download that uh, terabyte or so of data and then we throw out um, 79.99 million of them and just keep the 80 or so Kubernetes repos plus the 100 or so other repos for the other 25 CNCF projects. And we go through all of those and do a bunch of analysis and put it into a time series database uh, using Postgres and then have a Grafana front end to it that um, allows you to do these queries and visualizations and such. And so that's a, a project that we built out uh, a CNCF contractor works full-time on it uh, named uh, Lukas Griglicki uh, in uh, Poland. But um, he and I started this about a year ago, and the initial version was was perfectly fine, but the, the real value has been iterating it over the course of the last year with the Kubernetes community as they've had sort of very specific detailed requests for understanding different kinds of um, processes and graphs and such. And so that's just another area where CNCF can invest in development infrastructure that then hopefully allows the community to function better. 
Yeah, this is very neat. I'm just pulling it up as you're talking about it, and um, it allows you know such tracking as hourly activity on GitHub, different stats around the communities, summaries. There's issues, ages, all this kind of metadata around these projects. I can see this being useful in general for any project or yeah i would emphasize that it's an open source project on its own and mm. so for other projects that would like to get these kind of statistics we'd really encourage you there's a couple that have started doing it but we'd encourage you to give it a try and if you do run into issues kind of porting it over to your project we you can just file open issues on the the repo with us and we're happy to to work with you on it but as an example we have the statistic that across all 26 cncf projects there have been 40,086 unique contributors to them wow. and it's, it's really pretty amazing to i mean that's obviously a massive number but it's also just neat to be able to track all of that that's the first time i'm seeing this, this is really like you said they're really useful for not just uh, kubernetes and cncf but other projects as well this is really cool but yeah it also builds on um git dm which was originally written by uh, John Corbett of Linux Weekly News and Greg Crow Hartman, the stable kernel maintainer. And so, I mean, we're building on a, a lot of other work that was done here. We're using Grafana, I mean, obviously all this great open source so software like GitHub Archive and Grafana and, and such, but um, Postgres, but it, it really, and I, I also will um, give a shout out to Packet, the bare metal hosting company who uh, contributes uh, free server resources for us to run all this. Um, it, it's uh, kind of an involved process to go through all of that uh, data. And every now and then we make changes to it and have to rerun everything from scratch. And we can actually do that in just a couple hours on one of these 48-way servers. Well, we're big fans of GitHub Archive. We've been using that for years to generate our changelog nightly email, where we're there <laughs> we're only concerned about like the most recent 24-hour events, specifically star events. I love seeing other people use the same data set for like wildly different ways. And this seems like a very useful uh, way of going about that. So very cool. Glad it's open source. And I think a lot of people can definitely benefit. Check it out. Uh, devstats.cncf.io. Links in the show notes. And click around. And if it's interesting, it's kind of like GitHub Pulse on steroids. Remember the Pulse is like yeah. trying to get the idea of what's going on with this project lately. Oh, definitely. But this is like for the entire history of these things. It's very neat. Well, and, and particularly for something like Kubernetes, where it's across many different repos. Right, you can aggregate you have it. This, exactly. um, the, the, every SIG, every file, all like the 80,000 files or so are, are supposed to be owned by a specific SIG, but that mapping isn't transparent. So the fact that we're able to do all that in a, in a more complex project really uh, lets you dive in in a more detailed way. I guess one other project I might mention, I, I referred to it before, is um, CNCF's interactive cloud-native landscape, and that's at l.cncf.io. And this was um, kind of a personal passion project where I, I, it partly came from getting so many complaints about that crazy static landscape document with more than 500 boxes on it. and But also, just as I tried to stay familiar with the space, for any given project that I'd hear about, I would always do kind of the same set of searches of look it up on GitHub and how many stars and contributors did it have, and then look it up on Crunchbase and say, oh, well, the company behind it, how much funding uh, did they get? When were they founded? That kind of thing. And so this is, a, a again, a, a free open source project and service that does all of that for you. And one of the powerful aspects is um, 
just a lot of filtering and sorting that we build it built into it. So um, if, for example, if you're looking at it and over on the left side under example filters, if you click open source by age, this is, um, since you're kind of historians of open source <laughs> have been following this space, mm -hmm. It's pretty interesting to see, oh, here's the projects in the cloud native space. And then if you click on Postgres, you can see, oh, that was founded 22 years ago. And its latest commit is was this week, which is really such an extraordinary level of success and, and engagement. And then the uh -huh. next two are MariaDB and MySQL. And of course, they're forks of each other. So they were both founded 18 years ago. And then uh, going forward, you see things like Ceph that's 17 years ago and um, uh, Nginx and, and MuleSoft and Puppet and others. And so um, that's one view. But then another one that's kind of fun is click on open source by stars. Okay, you can see Kubernetes is, is number one there with 40,000. But things like Elastic and Ansible, Redis, uh, Serverless, Grafana. And then another neat one is offerings from China so that you can see that we're up to uh, 55 products and projects that we're tracking. They have a total of 18,000 stars. The companies behind them have a market cap of a trillion dollars and have uh, raised funding of $158 million. Yeah, I'm glad you said that because on the top there, I couldn't help but notice it says you are viewing 578 cards with a total of 1,227,438 stars. That's as of right now, I'm assuming. With a market cap, get this, $7.02 trillion and funding of $19.8 billion. Yeah, it's really quite a number. I mean, that's, I mean, it's good that it summarizes, but that's gigantic. You're mentioning just China at a trillion, uh, 7.2 trillion, you know, at market cap. Yeah. And it, it, what's fun about it, so as you look at different views that's updated, and then what's neat is that we go to Crunchbase and to Yahoo Finance every night and fetch the updated data. Wow. So we're essentially doing a lot of scraping, and then uh, this automatically updates every day. This episode is brought to you by DigitalOcean. They now have CPU optimized droplets with dedicated hyper threads from best in class Intel CPUs for all your machine learning and batch processing needs. You can easily spin up their one click machine learning and AI application image. This gives you immediate access to Python 3, R, Jupyter Notebook, TensorFlow, Scikit, and PyTorch. Use our special link to get a $100 credit for DigitalOcean and try it today for free at the do.co slash changelog. Once again, do.co slash changelog. What I find kind of interesting looking at this, you know, interactive landscape is that uh, the economies, the corporate economies out there, which is, you know, in a lot of ways what this represents, it's, you know, sure it's startups, but it's economies of scale for, you know, different businesses, places of employment, new technologies, but the sheer dependence upon open source and the health of those communities, right? You see this gigantic market cap, which we just sort of like glossed over to some degree, and then the investments that went into it to make it happen, but 
you know, while it's very informative to what the landscape represents in terms of the companies and the projects and the influences and the stars and the start dates and all that stuff, what it really represents in some cases or maybe behind the scenes is like the significance of the dependence of open source and the reliance on the health of those communities. And CNCF is operating very healthily, but that's what it represents to me. What, what do you guys think about that? Oh, I, I totally agree. And I think you will recall that I helped co-found the core infrastructure initiative. That's right. Uh, four years ago. And uh, you previously had David Wheeler um, on the show talking about the Badge App project. And I, I co-created that with him. That That's a way of open source projects um, talking about their health and things like the bus factor and licensing and, and other kinds of stuff. And And by the way, for any any project to graduate in CNCF, uh, they they are required to get that that passing best practices badge. So the the first two projects this year graduated Kubernetes and uh, Prometheus. But I, I think it is fair to say that I've seen now the entire range of open source projects from extremely unhealthy ones like uh, OpenSSL prior to Heartbleed, when you just had a couple. Um, uh, very underpaid developers and, and huge, almost universal reliance on it across the industry to kind of the most healthiest projects, which uh, Kubernetes uh, basically uh, falls into where you have dozens and dozens of the biggest companies in the world that are eager to fund it and, and move it forward. Yeah, the discrepancy between those things. And just thinking about, you know, OpenSSL was a blind spot and one that, you know, hopefully we all learn from. And a lot of these initiatives came out of, you know, Heartbleed. It was kind of an eye-opening moment. And just thinking, you know, $20 billion funding these 578, you know, uh, call them cards here. Are these repo? I don't know exactly what a card represents necessarily. Is it each one a repository or a grouping of repositories? It's a grouping. So it's either an open source project or a closed source product. Gotcha. So... Uh, you know, 500 plus of those um, adding up to funding of, of around $20 billion is a lot of money. And uh, there's so many other projects, maybe because they're not infrastructure, but they're, that are struggling to get, you know, 100 grand scratched together to support what they're doing or heck, uh, $5,000 for uh, some of their needs. And so I just see this huge discrepancy between kind of the rich and the poor, even in open source, which makes me a little bit sad, but it's just kind of the yeah, state of the I, world. Yeah, I would love to um, to say that uh, that whatever that 1%, 99% concept uh, doesn't hold, but I, I think it, it really does in yeah. open source. Um, and of course, if you look at, you know, 80 million open source projects on GitHub, it's only the 0.001% that would ever really... Um, be interested in or qualify for coming into CMCF or being a Linux Foundation project like Node or such. And so I, I do think there's a lot of interesting efforts out there and crowdfunding and otherwise to try and um, to support this. But certainly yeah. the cloud native community where it's an infrastructure, fundamentally it's an infrastructure play and, and lots of real companies out there are very comfortable paying for infrastructure, um, right. the economics seem more solid. It's just uh, a lot easier to get them on the sale. Like they're just, doesn't take much. They're used to it, as you said. Like whereas others, it may, the reliance on open sources, in a lot of cases, it's it's uh, informal and it's done through like insider working groups. And it, it, you know, even CEOs or people in charge are not even that aware. You know, I'm not saying that everyone's like this, but it, it seems to be some of the cases in, in non-infrastructure plays, essentially, 
where you may not really be aware of how much you're depending on open source and yet, you know, your business thrives because of it. Yeah. It's my view that it's essentially, there's um, a a nice description of, of transistors 30 years ago um, that you have to waste them or your cost structure will kill you. That, um, if if you waste millions of them on to make your TV screen look slightly nicer, and it's my view today that if you were um, so every company is is a, becoming a software company, software is definitely eating the world. But if you're not building on top of open source, it's essentially going to be impossible for you to stay competitive and to, uh, and to keep up. And so I, I'm certainly eager to see more solutions that um, help companies understand all of the open source dependencies, all the library dependencies that they have, both closed source and open source. I think that's absolutely essential from a security standpoint. And then look at um, helping to, to to have some funding solutions that go with that. The uh-huh. Linux Foundation is definitely actively investigating that space. Seems like an easier sell as well in terms of like if I'm upper management at a you know profitable company and I have a budget for infrastructure costs and I'm used to paying you know, historically licenses or you know, paying for software that is now being provided as open source, that just opened up a huge aspect of my budget. And it's because of open source that it opened it up. And so maybe I don't put the entire budget back into open source, but maybe I, you know, divvy it out and say, okay, well, because I would be paying for licenses for this stuff. And this is better software than probably the proprietary stuff because of the, the wisdom of the crowds or just the, you know, the joint efforts across all these different smart people. Well, it's not much of a stretch to then, you know, pour pour back into that and and really support it. Yeah, I totally agree. So you've had you've had massive growth both on the member side, which helped me with the verbiage. Member are the companies that are putting their money exactly. in, and then you have the project side. Is that what you call it? The the Kubernetes and the the right the projects, but also the envoys and and Jaeger right, right. and and Helm and Nat. So so Vitesse. Uh, so on. on and those are all the open source projects licensed under Apache right. 2.0 that anyone can engage with. So you've moved from eight to 26 projects and from 20 to 59 members, roughly in those numbers, repeating them back. Oh, that, was, so. um, that was end user members. Oh, okay. So, so of our almost party. 300 members, 59 of them are end user companies, folks like Bloomberg and eBay and JP Morgan and others that are using these technologies internally, but are not vendors. Okay. All right. So that makes sense. So 300 members, is that the number then of the, of the 292 people? 292 as of today. <laughs> oh, we're, we're, I rounded them. We're, we're almost was, there. Yeah. I was writing down your stats and I must have rounded that one up. Well, point is, is that you've <laughs> grown massive. Like we've, we've talked about the massive growth, but I want to talk about specifically scaling to the projects and, and what's provided you know, so far we've, we've talked about, you know, funding, um, CNCF offers, these foundations offer kind of a host of services to the projects. You move from eight to 26. So is the foundation itself also scaling with regards to operations, staff, the needs, are these projects putting more stress and strain on the foundation in order to support them? Oh, definitely. And, and, you know, we've just, we've needed to hire more people and then we've just needed to standardize a lot of processes. So you know, the CNCF started with just Kubernetes, and then it took a oh, six months or something for us to get Prometheus, and 
then I think Fluent D was number three after like eight months. So during those phases, if you needed something, you would just send an email to me or our, our chief operating officer, Chris Anchek, and say, hey, can you help us with this event? Oh, I, I need to set up an account for so-and-so. Oh, I'm having this issue. And um, that worked fine at first, but I think almost like any organization or software company, you, you just have to put processes in place going forward. So we have something we call the service desk, and it's just a um, tr tr ticket tracking system. But any of the maintainers of any of those 26 projects can, in principle, ask for anything. And I mean, conveniently, we, we've had the budget so far that we haven't needed to turn them down for um, a lot or, or for much at all. But the, the specific requests tend to be, I mean, a lot of them are just like super minor things like, uh, oh, can we have a, an official Kubernetes slide deck that um, people can, can do community presentations without having to use their company slide decks? Or for Prometheus, it was, hey, we want to run a community event for about 250 people. Can you help us organize that, that uh, handle all the money for us, for the sponsors that want to come in, help us sell it and, and such. And, and so we're very happy to do it. And then, you know, uh, presenting to our end user community engagement there. Um, all of our projects are very eager to be involved in KubeCon, CloudNativeCon. And so, although we do have this competitive uh, track system, we also have slots, uh, intro and deep dive slots for each of the projects. And so they definitely appreciate um, that opportunity to get in front of uh, the audiences. We do a lot of work with them on social media, on press relations and analyst relations, on giving them some kind of tracking on how things are going. So, I mean, one way of thinking about it is that if you're a big company like a Red Hat or a, a Google, and you have an open source project that you're trying to promote, you know, for commercial reasons, your, in, your company can provide you with a set of services. Um, but what we're suggesting is that for a lot of core cloud native projects, it's much better for it to be hosted by a neutral foundation, and but you're still going to want those services, and so um, we we try and provide a lot of the, the those same things. I mentioned the the certification uh, process, and we also offer training um, courses uh, with it. And so there's um, and then uh, thankfully it hasn't been that involved yet, but we also offer a variety of legal services around uh, trademarks, uh, contributor license agreement. If they want that, we, we generally recommend that projects instead go with the DCO, um, the Developer Certificate of Origin, which, uh, as you may know, originated with Linux. And so um, we just work with the, the projects here. But the sort of bigger picture is that what a foundation provides it needs to provide has certainly changed significantly in the last 20 years where, you know, when Apache started up, it was a huge deal to have um, a source code repository, to have a web page, to have some basic kind of continuous integration infrastructure. And today, basically any open source project can get that for free from GitHub, from Travis and CircleCI and similar kinds of services. And we actually encourage them to do that. We don't try and move them over to our infrastructure, but we, we do try and provide a set of services uh, that, that remain useful. I saw a headline uh, a few days ago, and I, I think this question is more so an outsider looking in about Google kind of handing over some of, since we're talking about, you know, the, the infrastructure involved in serving, you know, 
I think it's Kubernetes at large, not so much CNCF. And I know you kind of get questions of like, like this, that might be not exactly CNCF and they're more Kubernetes. And I saw a headline where they stepped away from the infrastructure and donated a bunch of, of uh, Google cloud credits. I think it was $9 million in credits, which is you know huge. But I think it was more so the question I have is like around how the responsibility of maintaining is spread across other big players. Is that, is that kind of what that play was about? Is, is that happening? Is the responsibility of, you know, maintaining Kubernetes on that infrastructure side, you know, held well across the board or is it sort of lopsided? Yeah, let, let me dive into that. And, and you saw both the announcement and also kind of an annoying TechCrunch yeah. uh, clickbait headline where they <laughs> said... Um, they got me. They got me. Um, yes. Google stepping away from right. Kubernetes, we which was not that. at all I correct. I was like, yeah. Well, yeah. And for what it's worth, even the content of the article didn't have that as well. But obviously, the headline writer gets compensated by clicks. And that's what, you know, maybe their A-B testing showed them got it Seems got like TechCrunch is moving beyond their core competencies in covering <laughs> these technical things. Yeah. Uh, I'm not going to go there, but uh, yeah. I, I see the a few articles on there. Is, I'm like, are they writing about this? This seems like yeah. nerdier than they're supposed to be writing about. But. Yeah. The counter argument is that the headline writer was completely successful because you saw that headline <laughs> and not the other 20 that got written up about it. But the, the first piece of background is that, you know, Kubernetes was originally a Google project. It was uh, uh, founded in Google as a piece of infrastructure to share um a lot of the expertise that they'd built up over the previous 15 years with their internal uh, kernel orchestration system called Borg. And so um, I, I draw the story of saying, well, you know, they came up with Kubernetes and it was literally just four years ago was the first commit to the repo. So this is not an old piece of software, although the, the engineering and the ideas behind it were all built on that, that previous system. Um, and at that moment, they had kind of four directions they could have gone. They could have kept it as an in-house uh, uh, proprietary offering, which would have been analogous to uh, Amazon's Elastic Container Service. And they realized that that was, would definitely have limited its adoption. Um, they could have open sourced it and kept it under Google control, which is essentially what they've done with Go. And, um, you know, Go is a fabulously successful language. Many CNCF projects are written in it, many other projects. Um, people have a lot of respect and confidence in Rob Pike's architectural choices. Um, the next level that would have been more open is they could have come to the Linux Foundation and said, hey, we think this is a really important project. We'd like there to be a Kubernetes Foundation. And uh, at the end of the day, the Linux Foundation probably would have said, sure, fine, we'll, we'll do that for you. But they actually chose what I consider the most open path, which is they said, we would like there to be a foundation. We'd like Kubernetes to be the anchor tenant, but we think that it's only a, a part, a core part of the solution, and we'd like to foster a whole ecosystem of projects around it. And so that was the Cloud Native Computing Foundation. And I mean, I think it's fair to say, I, um, I, I've spoken to Craig McLucky and, and Sarah Novotny were two of the key Google people and, and through that whole process that CNCF and, and Kubernetes growth has far, far exceeded their original expectations or even their hopes um, from when they when they did that three years ago. But as part of that, you know, it's starting out as a Google project. The, the, the Kubernetes community then needed to put together a governance and a, a, a 
process and a leadership structure. And that took them about a year and a half. And they had a lot of arguments and disagreements. And what's interesting is that CNCF doesn't impose that on any of our projects. There is no CNCF way, the same way that there's an Apache way. Instead, we ask that each of our projects come up with a governance process. We are willing to help them with it, and we do help them with it if, if they ask for it, and we ask that they document it. So it, they have a governance.md file or the equivalent, um, and then you know that they follow that that process that they've laid out. So that governance process and uh, was the last step for Kubernetes to graduate in March. And when that happened, uh, there's several Google people on the on the steering committee, which is the ultimately in charge of Kubernetes, but um, they're not a majority. There's no company that has a majority. And so they, they gave up kind of governance control at that point. But then uh, this was the kind of remaining issue where to build Kubernetes, the actual software development infrastructure is a huge undertaking. Un unlike Linux, where most kernel developers can try something and recompile it right on their machine and see the effect of it on their own machine. To really uh, work with Kubernetes often requires uh, a multi-server cluster of machines. And so every pull request that comes in triggers a continuous integration run across many different machines. And that, for historical reasons, had always run on Google infrastructure, Google Cloud infrastructure. Um, and so that meant that uh, because they were they were internal Google accounts, that no external uh, person from another mm. company could manage that or be involved in it. So it was a, a somewhat involved process, and this is exactly the kind of role that CNCF uh, was was happy and, and eager to take. But uh, Google went back and calculated how many runs that they're doing. And it was a little tricky because they were conflating together their own service, Google Kubernetes Engine, GKE, with the Kubernetes uh, project. They hadn't, because they originally hadn't been separated. So they um, have estimated that they think that $9 million in cloud credits will support the Kubernetes development for the next three years. And um, but the, the thing to understand is that they were essentially they essentially have already been spending that money over the last three years as well. They just weren't really getting credit for it. And so what this announcement is, is, is kind of externalizing a function that they had already been playing. But that said, I mean, they are real credits. We have an account and it has a lot of zeros on the number of uh, of credit available. And then the, the key thing that it allows is that within the Kubernetes community, there's a SIG testing um, group. And within that, there'll probably be a new sub-SIG that focuses just on this infrastructure that non-Google people can also participate in that administration. Uh, but that said, Google in no way is stepping back. The, the, the Google folks who have been responsible for the infrastructure until now continue to actively be involved in it and, and expect to continue to be indefinitely. The way you frame it is so much different and <laughs> listeners, that's why when you read TechCrunch headlines, sometimes I'm not read good articles on there, but then I've also read ones that are like, ah, I mean, that kind of seems like you're putting words in somebody's mouth. And in this case, you know, based on your response, it totally was because it seemed like a slap in the face, like almost as if they've been putting so much in and now it's time for others to step up, which I think was paraphrasing, uh, paraphrasing some of the content from the article. And I was just like. I, can't be I, I will say if you reread the article, it, it actually got a lot of the tone right. It was really the headline uh, that just puts you in a certain frame of mind. 
And, you know, we, we do a lot of press outreach and we, we've worked with that reporter and, and others. They, the reporters don't write their own headlines, um, but it's just a, a challenge of operating the space. And obviously, you know, people are busy. So most folks really don't have the time to read the article. That headline did not give a good a view on it. But I, I can confidently say that Google is as engaged as they ever have been. They're thrilled with the growth of the community, uh, the growth, the, the level of adoption and engagement. And this is really um, answering a call from the community. And it's, it's essentially the last piece of the Kubernetes project that was Google specific, that now um, Google does not have any more um, ownership or control than anyone else, except that you know Google continues to contribute a huge amount of of development and pull requests and fixes and such. And so that's the way that anyone um, has control in an open source project is is by doing the work. So I have some pretty awesome news to share. We are now partnered with Algolia. If you've ever searched Hacker News, Teespring, Medium, Twitch, or even Product Hunt, then you've experienced the results of Algolia's search API. And as we expand our content, we knew that one day we'd have to either roll our own search solution on top of Postgres, or we could partner up with Algolia. And I'm happy to report that phase one of our search is now powered by Algolia. We're able to fine tune our indexing, gain insights from search patterns and analytics. We can create custom query rules to influence ranking behavior. As well as improve our search experience by adding synonyms and alternative corrections to queries. Sure, we could build search ourselves, but that would mean we would be busy doing that instead of shipping shows like you're listening to right now. Huge thanks to our friends at Algolia for working with us. Check the show notes for a link to get started for free or learn more by heading to algolia.com. And by GoCD. GoCD is an open source continuous delivery server built by ThoughtWorks. Check them out at gocd.org or on GitHub at github.com slash gocd. GoCD provides continuous delivery out of the box with its built-in pipelines, advanced traceability, and value stream visualization. With GoCD, you can easily model, orchestrate, and visualize complex workflows from end to end with no problem. They support Kubernetes and modern infrastructure with elastic on-demand agents and cloud deployments. To learn more about GoCD, visit gocd.org slash changelog. It's free to use, and they have professional support and enterprise add-ons available from ThoughtWorks. Once again, gocd.org slash changelog. Dan, the CNCF does, as you know, because you're part of it, uh, leader of it, uh, a biannual survey that sort of surveys the landscape. And some of the insights from that essentially is, you know, services on the rise. We kind of we kind of see that Jared and I as part of this show, you know, on JS Party, we're covering that on this show, we're covering that uh, Kubernetes dominating, which this whole conversation was about the the growth. That's clear. But uh, then you also have cloud native production usage exploding. And, you know, some of the top challenges not being technically how to deploy containers, you know, what are some of these things you want to dive into that, that we can kind of cover from this survey that are insights for you that, that particularly stand out? Uh, yeah, I, I would love to say that it was just this shocking result and uh, really changed my thinking about where CNCF should be focused um, and, and what we should be doing. But I, I'm kind of 
pleased to say that it, it was kind of more of the same. I mean, just the fact that we see so many actual end users at our conferences, that it's not just vendors talking to each other. Um, and, you know, all, all the folks that we're talking to are talking about, yeah, you know, last year I was really looking at Kubernetes in, in the lab or uh, originally Docker to try and speed up some of my development processes. But now we're begin beginning to move these into production and, and we're looking at how to move more and more of our apps uh, over to it. So I think, uh, yeah, the production usage growing 200%, evaluation 372%. Uh, 40% of the enterprise companies we talked to are running Kubernetes in production are all um, pretty fantastic uh, I indicators of, of the engagement and adoption. I, I guess one other piece that I would mention that I'm particularly passionate about is um, continuous integration and, and continuous deployment. That was the keynote that I gave in Copenhagen, arguing that continuous integration is actually probably the most important part of the cloud native architecture, that it's the thing that provides the most dramatic value to organizations that are not already doing it. That that basic kind of sandy test of, uh, is my software working? Can I redeploy it? Uh, can I quickly make changes or improvements or fixes and, and get it uh, out there to, to customers where they can benefit from it? What percentage, if you could had a hazard a guess of you know corporations who are involved in the CNCF or that are on your purview are in the category of not having that step, like not having CICD going on and, and can benefit from it. And how many are, are doing it today? Oh, I think zero are, are not doing any kind of CICD. I mean, I think almost the, the kind of organizations that are reaching out to CNCF and getting involved are the ones who realize that this is important and that they need mm -hmm. to get engaged and, and focus on it. We, we use this um, crossing the chasm metaphor that you may be, uh, familiar with the, the chart where we talk about our graduated projects as being suitable for the early majority, um, or which are known as the pragmatists, that we really think that 2018 is the year that um, Kubernetes crossed the chasm. And um, then we talk about our incubating projects, our eight incubating ones as being suitable for early adopters and our sandbox projects, the more Im immature, being used by innovators or techies. But I, I'm very cognizant of the fact that the you know at least half of businesses out there, those folks that are called the late majority and the laggards, have really not started down this path at all. And, you know, they have a huge amount of benefit in front of them. And then they have a big competitive challenge that they're uh, competitors are going to be out there with just much faster uh, development velocity. I mean, it's it's great to say, oh, well, here's the efficiencies of more um, uh, better packing your applications into a fixed number of servers. But we think mm -hmm. that the huge change, the huge benefit is just faster update cycles on your software about being able to respond in a more agile way. Yeah, ship on green is a, is a big deal to teams once they get there to, to be able to you know, our team is much smaller, so but I only have our example, and we do have CI and CD in place here at ChangeLog when we deploy, but very small in comparison to some of the other projects that may ship, you know, hundreds of times in, in a week. And what a change that is to, you know, for velocity and for, you know, instant gratification towards, you know, innovation or, you know, getting a win that day or that week rather than like, uh, when's the next deploy kind of thing. 
Yeah, and I um, this was my my keynote uh, talk in Copenhagen. I'll include a link to the the slide deck. Was titled "How Good Is Your Code?" Um, and so, in a world where you are dependent on all of these libraries, and a lot of those libraries do have security bugs and issues that come up that you do need to fix, it's just absolutely essential that you be able to redeploy your software. And so, I, I draw the analogy that it's almost um, like. Uh, science that you may think it's it, that you have a hypothesis that you ch this change you just made to your code is great but until you can actually pass your tests and redeploy it it just uh it isn't a real thing yet i was just seeing on twitter somebody somebody that we know adam i can't think of their name right now who it was you know talking about deploying on fridays and how it's a bad idea to deploy on fridays and all that kind <laughs> of stuff and i was thinking like aren't you deploying every day all day like why is friday special still um, I, I like um, Etsy uh, got a reputation a few years ago for, first of all, doing more than 50 deploys a day. But one of their uh, uh, ideas is that every new employee would make a, including non-technical ones, would make a commit uh, live to production on their first day of work. Yeah. Nice. Um, and yeah, you know, of course, you have to have a, a test process and a QA process and other kinds of things that, that you have the confidence that, that that can occur without anything breaking. But I think it really is a great model that not that every company can quite live up to that yet, but at least to to try and move towards. So as we look a little bit towards the future, Dan, one of the questions we asked uh, Jason McGee of Istio was about, you know, this landscape, the really a lot of the change that's happening, all of these projects coming in, um, this idea of like different layers of this cloud native stack and where certain things start to formalize. Um, he mentioned that basically we've come to consensus that like containers are a good thing, right? And that <laughs> Kubernetes is pretty much winning its layer. Then you have service meshes, you have networking things, you have serverless. There's lots of other stuff that's like either patching together lower layers or sitting on top. And one of the things I asked him, and I'll ask you as well, as, as somebody who's interested in this stuff, but does not have like a vested interest in like figuring out provisioning or figuring out orchestration or service meshes, but would want to eventually, like, I love the benefits of the cloud native lifestyle. Like I want to be mm -hmm. a cloud native, right? When, when do you think this is all going to shake out or maybe coagulate around a certain happy path or, you know, maybe choose your own adventure a little bit, but mm -hmm. less, less churn, less friction, less stuff changing all the time. Oh, I definitely think so. And, and I do think there's huge cognitive overhead in this, um, interactive landscape. I mean, I, I will tell you that that the the landscape, the 570 projects, it's been described at times as, as helpful, as overwhelming, mm -hmm. and as the hellscape. <laughs> the and, hellscape. <laughs> um, that's a, one way to paint it. <laughs> and that's by a, a leader in our community, I might I might add. Uh, but I, I'll, I'll, I'll leave him anonymous for now. But um, I, I think the simplest solution for it is if you, especially if you're a startup, if you're a small organization, if you're coming in from a greenfield perspective, it's very likely that you're going to use a vendor for these things. And that vendor might be um, a hosted cloud provider. It might be an enterprise software company that helps you run things on your own bare metal. And one of the great roles that those vendors play, take is that they pick the the projects and the offerings that they think are ideal for their customers. And it's very, very likely as you get started in this space that whatever the vendor puts together for you, maybe your favorite cloud provider, is going to be perfectly fine. 
that um, to, to get up to speed on it, to get your logging working, monitoring, these other kinds of things that you can dive in and, and, and work with almost any of them. And then if you just find that, you know, your monitoring solution that the, maybe it's a proprietary monitoring solution that you're paying too much money for, or maybe it's the vendor's proprietary monitoring solution on their cloud and, and you don't feel like it gives you enough flexibility or doesn't let you um, hook into all of your services the way you'd like it to, then it's a relatively natural step to, to look at that CNCF trail map and say, oh, I guess I could be looking at Prometheus. And, you know, maybe your vendor's already just offering a hosted version of Prometheus and it's it you're either using it or it's it's easy to switch to it. But I, I, I really want to avoid this implication that you have to be familiar with all 570 options. Um, there is mm-hmm. this concept by uh, actually a former professor of mine at Swarthmore named Barry Schwartz, the tyranny of the tyranny of choice that mm-hmm. um, having more options does not necessarily make you happier and certainly makes it uh, just overwhelming to, to try and make any kinds of decisions. And so, you know, the CNCF projects in general somewhat represent a happy path where we can confidently say, hey, if you choose our graduated and incubating projects, we know they all work. We know that there's real end users adopting them. We know that there's vendors out there who are eager to support them. There's your issues are going to get responded to, you know, maybe not uh, that your pull request will get accepted. We can't go that far, but that it's a, a pretty safe bet to engage and get invested in those communities. And then that's the other way to look at it, which is, okay, if you want to just go entirely open source, um, one of my favorite examples here is the company Bloomberg here in New York, who uh, they just don't like working with vendors. They want to be have all their expertise internally. They, they download 100% uh, open source and um, they make it work for themselves. And so CNCF represents a great uh, kind of spotlight and indicator for them of a set of projects that they can have confidence in the communities behind them. That's one thing I see that you do very well, especially with like this interactive landscape and just several other things we've gone through, like the, the, the dev stats is that you're doing a great job of, of bubbling up the right information to make good choices. And you're not making the choices for the community. You're making aware of who's getting involved in cloud native and all that it is at all at all levels of the game and to me it's like you're just doing a great job of of sharing the right information so that folks like us can say this is the direction for us to go or this is a project that makes sense for us or areas where we can get involved or just like you said have confidence in our choices rather than feeling like the cncf uh, is just saying here's the best go use this for, yeah forcing you to use it yeah so thank you for that and, and i mean i think it it probably comes somewhat from my own perspective of having been the chief technology officer of a couple startups and, and co-founder of a couple others where it's hard to make these choices and uh i've made them past and and to some degree I, I i i've made them incorrectly and so there's also some humility built in here that i i don't have the confidence uh to, that I, I can guarantee that every project involved with CNCF will be perfect for every end user out there. One of the, the kind of nice aspects of, of our philosophy is that we specifically don't have the approach of that there can only be one project per box. So an example right now is uh, Linkerd and Envoy are both um, very capable service meshes, but essentially you're only going to choose one or the other. 
right. or another one is container D and rocket. And when we see that there's multiple offerings out there, we're, we've been very willing or the, the technical oversight committee has been willing to uh, adopt multiple ones. Well, I think uh, to rewind a little bit, that's kind of how it began was, you know, the question was, will Kubernetes win, you know, versus the other options. And eventually I believe the reason why you can probably stand firm in that is that, you know, the community will eventually choose a winner or select their own that makes sense for them. And maybe there's one or two or three winners, so to speak, but you know, you don't need to choose, you know? Sure. And another way of looking at it is, um, you know, Mesos kind of had been the winner before Kubernetes came along. And I think Kubernetes has largely supplanted it. But the reality is that there are still real, very substantial companies out there with massive Mesos implementations. And interestingly, if you're like a, a legacy brownfield enterprise and you're thinking, oh, well, I need to containerize and, and um, I, I want to go with Kubernetes, there's a huge advantage to, to you doing that. You're going to see big uh, efficiency gains in your servers and development velocity and such. But if you've already invested all of this effort to get Mesos up and running and it runs perfectly well in your data center today and you've trained your teams on it and everything, the marginal value of you switching is really low. Yeah. Um, and you know, you'll probably do that eventually. Maybe you'll start with a small Kubernetes cluster for a few of your apps, and then maybe over time you'll move more and more. Or like Stripe had an interesting story where Mesos was working for them, but the the cron functionality that they needed wasn't getting um, the attention and love it needed in Mesos. And so they switched over to Kubernetes. Uh, Julia Evans has a great uh, blog post about that that I'll I'll post in here. Um, and uh, have invested and, and and that's worked out well for them. But what's nice with the CNCF projects is that even in that scenario, you still can and should evaluate our other offerings. So Prometheus is also the leading monitoring application, not just for Kubernetes, but also for Mesos. Uh, Fluentd for logging works great with Mesos. And so we definitely are, are not trying to lock you into a certain uh, technology choices. The um, the the metaphor we use for that uh, trail for the landscape and for the trail map is that it's a kind of preferred path or like a particularly well trodden, well lit path, but that all of us are trying to reach the same goal of the cloud native getting to cloud native. That's the destination, but there's many different paths that you can take to get there. What's what's upcoming for you or for CNCF or any of the projects involved, what's maybe something that's either not well known or something you can tease that's coming up in your horizon? It's, you know, this is barely September. We're just a few days into it. Uh, what's upcoming that you can tease around the show as it close? Sure. So I, I think the biggest thing that I would, would say in that we didn't have a chance to chat about yet so much so far is the level of engagement and interest from China. And so that has been somewhat of a surprise to CNCF. And to me, um, Huawei was a founding Platinum member. But since then, we've added two others, uh, Alibaba and JD.com, the two biggest retailers, e-commerce retailers in China. And then we've added Baidu and uh, Tencent and ZTE as gold members. And um, then uh, dozens of silver and uh, smaller companies. And so partly as a result from that huge level of engagement, we're launching our first ever KubeCon CloudNativeCon event in Shanghai 
uh, November 13th to 15th. And so if you're in China or uh, really anywhere in, in, in Asia or Australia and um, you haven't yet been willing to, to come to Europe or the U.S., I'd love to see you in Shanghai. Uh, we're going to have 100% of our of the talks, the keynotes and the sessions will have simultaneous interpretation into uh, English and Chinese. And it's a, really just a neat process to see. Uh, we also just had our first two projects that originated from China, where the majority of the development was by uh, Chinese people, uh, were adopted into CNCF. And that was Harbor uh, Container Registry, uh, contributed by VMware, and then um, a really impressive key value store called uh, TaiKV that was uh, built by a company in, in Beijing called PingCap. And so on, on really all the different levels of engagement with China, training, um, our service providers, our certified Kubernetes, we're seeing that, that level of interest in, uh, from China just skyrocket. Um, and then, as, as I mentioned before, we would love to have people attend our, our KubeCon, CloudNativeCon event in Seattle. That's the flagship event. It's, it's probably going to be 7,000 people. We, we have very good likelihood of selling out. So if it is something you're thinking about, if your organization is investing in these technologies or seriously considering it, uh, we would love to see you there and definitely would recommend uh, signing up. So it's KubeCon, K-U-B-E-C-O-N.io. Good. We'll be there as well. That's December 10th through 13th. So in Seattle at Washington State Convention Center, which uh, we've been there. It's, it's great. It's easy to get to. Great uh, city to be in. So if you can, make it out. Dan, thank you so much for your time. It's been a pleasure catching back up with you. Congrats on all the progress to you and the rest of the team. I know it's a massive team behind you. You're not the only person doing this work. As if so, then uh, you'd have <laughs> definitely some Definitely the case. But uh, definitely you can see the, you know, the right directions for everything. And we love playing a part with you in terms of catching up and being able to update the community on new things happening and where, where uh, you know, where this is heading. So Awesome. Thanks for the chat. Thank you, Dan. Thanks, Dan. Thanks for tuning in this week. If you enjoy the show, do us a favor, rate it on iTunes, tweet about it on Twitter, share it in your favorite list of podcasts. And thank you to our sponsors, Hired, DigitalOcean, Algolia, and GoCD. Also, thanks to Fastly, our bandwidth partner. Head to Fastly.com to learn more. And we catch your errors here at Changelog before our users do because of Rollbar. Check them out at Rollbar.com. We're hosted on Lino Cloud Servers. Check them out at Lino.com slash Changelog. This show was hosted by myself, Adam Stachowiak, and Jared Santo. Mixing and mastering is done by Tim Smith. Music is by Breakmaster Cylinder. And you can find more shows just like this at changelog.com slash podcasts. When you go there, check out our master feed if you want to get all of our shows. Changelog.com slash master. Get every show we do, not just the changelog. We produce lots of shows I'm sure you'll love, so check it out. And thanks for tuning in. We'll see you next week. <laughs>